have arrived. I am home in the here and in the now. I have arrived. I am home in the here and in the now. I am solid. I am free. I am solid. I am free. In the ultimate I dwell. In the ultimate I dwell. Welcome home. We had such a period of busyness and activity. It's nice to arrive back in the present moment, isn't it? Although I have to say, I love the work meditation times. On Zen retreats, we have work meditation every day. And it's really fun. And I've had the privilege of being the resident carpenter, so I build furniture and things for the practice center on retreat days. I set up a shop, and I love it. This morning, I want to talk about love. I want to talk about love maybe in a different way than you're used to talking about love. Often when we think of love, we think of it as a sentiment, uh, as a feeling we have towards something, and it covers a huge range of things. You know, you can say, I love my child, and I love hamburgers. (laughs) I love the New York Yankees. But that's not the kind of love I want to talk about. I want to talk about love in a deeper sense than that. And we keep coming back to the wisdom of Thich Nhat Hanh here, and I can't escape it. He has become me, and I have become him in a deep way. So I've learned so much from him, and I want to take his uh, wisdom on love and share that with you. So here's what he says. Love and understanding are the same thing. Love and understanding are the same thing. If you understand something deeply, you can't help but love it. And it doesn't make any sense to say you love something if you don't understand it. Because you're not loving that person or that thing, you're only loving your idea about it. And it may be vastly different from the reality of that person or that thing. So call to mind for a moment something that you have understood deeply. Maybe you spent years learning to play the piano. You understand it. Maybe you've watched your bird feeders outside the window and you've learned to understand those birds. Or maybe you've stood at the Met like I have and looked at Van Gogh's brushstrokes and went, wow. So the more intimate you become with that thing that you're calling to mind now, the more you understand it. We can say the more you love it. You understood it and naturally this feeling of love arises. 
You don't have to do anything else. It just comes up. When I look at Monet's sun or uh, water willies, I love it. And the same can be true with people. Those of us who are parents and have welcomed a little baby into our life, we don't know who that baby is. I remember we named our babies before we knew who they were, and that felt really presumptuous. But we watched them closely. We learned everything we could learn about our babies. Everything we could learn. And the more we learned about them, the more we loved them. At first, they were an abstraction. Who is this little critter? But then they became Malia and Blake. They became the people that they are, and I love them. So the danger here is that we can fall in love with something or someone without understanding it, but it's just a fantasy. It's a false love. And it falls apart really quickly once we realize the reality of that person. Because we weren't in love with them at all, actually, just with our fantasy. So that's the idea of love that I want to build upon today. That love and understanding are the same thing. So let's talk about clearing our listening space a little differently. We've talked about how to clear our listening space in our body and in our mind, but let's talk about how to clear it in our heart by clearing our loving space so that there's room to love. So as we've cleared our listening space by slowing our momentum, we can do something similar by clearing out the momentum of our loving space. To love and understand something, there has to be room to really receive it, to really receive it, not just a cursory glance. And when we start to clear out that loving space so that there's room for understanding, we discover that the loving space itself has a quality. It's not just completely neutral. It's not like, we're not like scientists. You know, a scientist strives to be completely neutral in their observation of the world so that they can make true and clear deductions about how things are. But our, our loving space isn't quite like that. It contains a hint of love. When we really open that space, our true nature of love is there. It's sort of like the lovely lemon water that we've had with our meals. You know, the water is pure and clear, and all it takes is just a little bit of lemon squeezed into it, and now it has a whole other flavor. It's still the water, it's still the same nourishment, but it has a hint of lemon. That's what our loving space is like. It has a hint of love. So we don't have to work real hard to generate love, it just comes when we open that space and are free to receive. Ram Das used to like to say that he was loving awareness. That's who he was. 
I really can relate to that more and more. So this loving space is our human gift. We don't have to go create it or cultivate it. It's there already. We simply have to clear it. And then when we see things and understand things, love is present right away. That's so nice. That's the fruit of a contemplative practice. So let's talk a little bit about what obstructs that loving space. Because just as our listening space can be obstructed by our ideas or our busyness or our activity or running around, our loving space can also be obstructed. And the loving space is mostly obstructed by us, which is good news because we can do something about that. And it's obstructed by what we in Buddhist psychology call our heart mind. Vicki said the other day correctly, she said, well, you know, there's really no difference between the mind, body, and heart. And that's true. And in, and in Buddhist psychology, we have collected heart-mind as one because really you can't fully separate those two. You feel and you think together. So I'm going to refer to this as the heart-mind. And that's usually what ends up clogging up our loving space. So what's the mechanism of that? <clears throat> well, I want to talk about the, the prime thing that we all use to clog our loving space, and that's our core suffering. Core suffering. What is this core suffering? Well, um, first of all, you don't have to worry that you have it or don't have it, because you do. <laughs> we all do. Uh, it's whether or not we recognize it. And why we have this core suffering uh, has a, a sort of a generalization, and this won't apply to everybody in all situations, particularly extreme situations of abuse and neglect. It's more complicated than I'm going to present it, but let's just put those aside for just now. Our core suffering arises because we had a more or less perfect environment when we were conceived and held in our mother's body. We weren't hungry. We weren't cold. We didn't have any needs that weren't met. And then we're born. And no matter how loving our parents were, how perfect our environment was, we will come into contact with the fact that the world isn't perfect. Our needs are not going to get met, at least some of them. And it's happened to all of us in one way or another. To, to small degrees or big degrees. So then we're, we're little children with small children's minds when this happens. And so what do we do? We look around and we say, oh my gosh, I'm not getting loved. It must be because I'm unlovable. A child's mind is self-centered. We blame everything on ourselves. <coughs> We don't have perspective that we've grown to later in our adulthood. So our core suffering becomes these childhood assumptions about the imperfection of the world. And those assumptions are personalized and made my fault. Yeah. 
and none of us want to feel that because it really hurts. Those are strong, powerful feelings, that core suffering. When I first started to tap into my own core suffering, I was shocked at how strong it was. The feelings I felt felt life-threatening. Really life-threatening. They were that strong. And I had no idea they were there. I spent like 50 years with these things, and when I felt them, it was a complete shock. So we don't want to feel that. None of us do. So what do we do? We create a set of behaviors and beliefs that keep our core suffering away from our cognitive understanding, away from feeling it. And we all have different strategies to do that. You know, my, my core suffering, part of it is shame. You know, a shame of not being what my family wanted me to be. And so I have created a whole set of beliefs and behaviors to keep my shame at bay. Yours might be something different, but you've probably created these too. So here's some common ones, common core beliefs of our personality. So maybe yours is something like fear in your core. So some of us use anger to keep that away. If I can be angry at the world and at you, I don't have to feel that fear because all my attention is going that way. Oh, I don't have to feel it. So I'm habitually angry. I have a loved one in my family who is like this and she suffers terribly from it. Terribly. Um, another strategy, and this is one that I've used, I don't want to feel that shame, so what do I do? I become invisible. Nobody sees me. I can't feel ashamed. Right? So instead of being angry, I disappear. I get small. Uh, maybe uh, one of your core suffering might be that you're not good enough. So to keep that at bay, you become a perfectionist. Right? You make sure you do everything right. And you've got plan A and plan B and plan C. Just in case that doesn't work, you have plan D. Right? And all of them are a list. That's your belief and your strategy for keeping your core suffering at bay. And none of us escapes this because we're all wounded and we all come up with flawed techniques to not feel that core suffering. So you can just let go of the idea that this doesn't affect me and then start to get curious about it. What is mine? Because it's there somewhere. And the real irony is these beliefs and behaviors that form our personality, everyone else sees them. Everybody else knows except us. Ask anybody who knows you well. Oh, they know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they know. I was wondering if you'd ask. <laughs> so it's really a great relief to let go of thinking you have to hide all that stuff from everybody else because you can't. So maybe don't hide it from yourself either. So this is what clouds our loving space. We spend so much energy trying not to feel our suffering and to hold it at bay with these beliefs and behaviors, 
and to force the world not to show it to us, there is no room for love. All our effort is occupied. You know, we're not free to understand the world when all we're doing is protecting ourselves from the world. We're not free to understand the world when all we're doing is protecting ourselves from the world. You can't do both. We can't open our heart-mind and close our heart-mind at the same time. So just imagine for a minute that your protection strategy is anger. If you're always angry, it's impossible to be vulnerable enough to be in a loving relationship with something because love is vulnerable. But anger will keep that door closed. If you have the strategy of becoming invisible, well, you can engage in the reciprocity of love. Love is a give and take, a back and forth. And if you're invisible, you're not there to do it. And if your protection strategy is perfectionism, well, it's impossible to open our hearts to the imperfect world. We'll just judge, judge, judge. I'm working so hard to be perfect, you need to do the same thing. Get out of my way. So it it sounds like I painted a pretty bleak picture here, but it's not ultimately bleak. I think it's important that we face reality as it is, and this is the reality. This is why we have trouble understanding and loving, but we don't have to be stuck there. We don't have to be stuck there. For most of us, this is kind of a bad assessment because for most of us, we're not going to want to change and we're not going to change. And when I say most of us, I'm not really referring to the sort of people that would come to a retreat like this, who are here intentionally to open our hearts. But I saw this so much working with ill and dying people. You know, people suffered oftentimes their whole life from their strategies and their core suffering. And rarely there was a person who at the end of their life would look back and say, oh my gosh, look what I've done. And they changed course. That was pretty rare. Sometimes it happened and it was really inspiring to see that happen. But let's not wait. Let's not wait until we see the end in front of us to make these changes. And we don't want to wait because we don't want to spend our lives trapped in that prison of the restrictions of our core suffering and the personality we build. We want the freedom to be out in the world engaged in love. So let's not be 
like unfortunately most of us will be, which is to hold this stuff right till the end and die with regrets. So what's the way out? Contemplative practice. You might notice I keep coming back to that. Maybe it's just because that's what I know. Maybe there's other ways, but that's what I know. And I know that it's worked for me, and my hope is it works for others as well. So there's lots of kinds of contemplative practice. I know the Zen kind of contemplative practice, and so I can speak about that, but I don't want to minimize the other sorts of practices that people do uh, across the world. Indigenous cultures have great wisdom in this area, and I don't know much about it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. So people all over the world, they meditate, they pray, they chant, they follow family and cultural rituals. They use those tools to free themselves. But I know the way I've been taught, so I'll talk about that. And again, back to Thich Nhat Hanh, he said, the way out is in. The way out of this mess is to go in. So the way to go in for us in a retreat like this is to really follow our mindfulness moment to moment and be willing to see what comes up. You know, we can't see that core suffering usually directly. It's like a black hole. It's, it sucks all the light, but you can see the things that orbit around it. And you can tell a lot about the black hole because of the way things orbit around it. So in a retreat like this, what we notice is we start to see our behaviors and our ideas. And eventually they begin to lead us to understanding. So the practice that I'd like to suggest that we do is labeling our thoughts. So here's the practice. When you sit down for meditation, you watch the thoughts that come up. And when they come up, you simply label them and let them go. So it might be something like this. Mm. Rumination. Mm. Ah, Revising the past. Mm. Judgment. So each time a thought comes up, I give it a label, not too specific. You know, it doesn't help me to say, Um, judgment about my Montessori school teacher when I was four years old when she put away my washcloth too soon, you know. That doesn't help. And it doesn't help to be too broad, like just thought, right? Now, this is a long, slow, steady process, this labeling. But what it yields is we begin to know something about that black hole of our core suffering because we notice that we perpetually have a few kinds of thoughts over and over and over again. So in my case, I noticed that my thoughts that came up over and over again were of certain varieties. I was looking back to the past and revising it so I looked better, right? I was replaying history and and making myself a little better in it. I was talking to people who weren't there, who couldn't talk back, and tell them like it is. 
I was ruminating about something that someone did 40 years ago, running the story again and again in my mind. So I noticed there were thoughts that came up like this over and over and over again, and they began to point to something. I began to see that all those kinds of thoughts that were coming up for me were preventing me from feeling my shame, right? I was ashamed at how I behaved. I was ashamed that I had said that I needed to revise that historical event. You know, again and again, so I began to see that, oh my gosh, this black hole for me is shame. So I invite you into this practice as well. Begin to label your thoughts and then wonder, what is it showing you? And maybe that will create the opening where you begin to feel the core suffering and begin to transform it. So the lovely part here is that the more we open to our core suffering, the more it becomes transformed. We don't have to do anything except see it. Seeing it is enough. Being willing to feel it is enough. Every time we feel that core suffering, it grows weaker. The black hole starts to shed some light. And eventually, as it weakens and weakens, we begin to see that it's not separate from our deepest true nature. The two inter are. They looked this looked so awful before, and now we see, oh my gosh, it's my biggest gift. My biggest gift. So as it weakens, our loving space is clearer and clearer and clearer because it's not occupied by all that work that it takes to deny that it's there. All that work it takes not to feel it. When that weakens, we're no longer protecting ourselves and we're available to love. I don't have to, have to have you be a certain way before I can love you. Before, I had to have you be a certain way so that make sure you didn't touch my core suffering. But when that weakens, I can be with you just like you are. Hmm. When I'm not consumed with protecting myself, I can hear the herons. I can hear their squawking. When my heart mind isn't shut tight, I can see the beauty of a child's face and such joy that is. When I'm not all about protecting my core suffering, I can be with someone that is very difficult without feeling threatened. This for me is the, is the fruit of the practice. I, um, 
I didn't know this is where it was going. I had no idea. But as it's unfolded and I feel freer and freer and more and more available, it's such a joy. And it would be my greatest gift to give that to you. It would give me so much joy. So let's look back for a moment of where we've come. We arrived here unsure what was gonna happen. We have two communities coming together. Who knows what's this gonna be like? Who is this guy? Who is this lady? (laughs) Who are these other people? And we settled in together as a community, a single community. And we began to slow down. And we started to explore silence, what silence is in us and outside of us. We looked at how to clear all these spaces that we have that are clogged up with the busyness and the momentum so that our true nature can come forward, this true nature of love. It doesn't matter what name we give it. It can be Christ consciousness. It can be that of God within us. It can be our Buddha nature, our true self. It doesn't matter. Any word you put on it is just half measures. We have a saying in Buddhism that um, the Buddha playfully let words escape his golden mouth and the world ever after was entangled in briars. So don't put a word on it. Know it for yourself. When you touch that loving openness, pause. Know it for yourself. Take time to stay there. Look around. Become intimate with it. You don't need to take my word for it or anybody else's description of it. When you touch it yourself, and I know you all do touch it, this is not a fleeting, some fancy thing that only a few people get. Everybody has access to this. So when you touch it, take the time to notice it and know it for yourself. Nobody can take that experience away from you. You know. And then when it starts to surface, you know it is here. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about you. Let's stay together for a while. And when you're in the midst of your suffering, when your core suffering is activated, when you're lost in your personality, which you will be again and again and again and again, once you know this freedom for yourself, you can remember and you can say, why would I stay here in this suffering? I know what my true nature is. And just like that, you can be back. Just like that. So I wanna thank you for your loving attention, for opening up your loving space to me. I can really feel it. 
It's deeply moving. And I've offered so many words, way more words than we can integrate in three days. So please feel free to let go of everything except what touched your own wisdom. Maybe it's one thing. That's enough. One thing's enough. Every Dharma talk is about the same thing, just from a different angle. So take the angle that works for you. Let everything else go.